Please take your Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 1 for our scripture reading. We have been reading through Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ in Luke 1 and 2. And so naturally, it will leave us in Luke 2, 1 to 20 for next Sunday, on Christmas Sunday. Here in this text, we see the birth of John the Baptist and, and then Zechariah's prophecy following that. Follow along as I, as I read. Starting in verse 57, we'll read to verse 80. Luke 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard, it, heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of, God, of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of God. Amen. Let us go now in prayer to the Lord. Father, we join with Zechariah in praising you, in worshiping you for what you have promised, 
and what you have fulfilled, and even what you will fulfill that remains. This passage staggers us to think of the expectations of those in the time before Christ and all the promises that you had made to them. Promises of a seed from the, from the woman who would deliver us. One who would be a king. One who would be a priest. One who would be a prophet like Moses. One who would be pierced for his people. One who would be submissive under an unjust trial. Who would bear the sins of his people. One who would then be buried. And then with one who would be raised again on the third day. One who would then be victorious over death. And would achieve a salvation for sinners. One who would then rise or ascend to heaven, sit at the right hand of your throne, having completed his work, having sat down, his work of satisfying your wrath and forgiving sinners was complete. Until that time, he would return to rule on David's throne. These expectations that were found in the Old Testament and the hope of your people, as Zechariah shows. We thank you for bringing the forerunner of John to proclaim him, to make Christ known, to make ready the way of the Lord. And we thank you for the culmination of history when Christ came and God became man and Christ bore the wrath, Father, that was deserved upon us, bore it in full. We thank you for the hope of his coming again and his rule on the earth. Having reconciled us to you, he will now reign and we will reign with him. What a great hope we have, our king, our sovereign. Lord, we acknowledge that Though you have redeemed us from the curse of the law, though you have reconciled us to yourself, you have satisfied your wrath, yet we are still sinners. We still sin against you. For that, we ask your forgiveness. We ask for cleansing so that we might, uh, though our union with you would never change from your secure salvation, our communion with you may wax and wane. And so we, we desire a full communion with you, a, an experience of your presence. Even in this season especially, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins and thank you for the assurance of cleansing in Christ that we might enjoy uh, this union, this closeness with you. We pray that you would minister to us in a special way through your word as it's preached. Our hearts would thrill at the thought of Christ, even as we, even as we studied of his, his glory and in, in Sunday school, in Colossians 1, and just the exaltedness of Christ, his preeminence, may you exalt him in our hearts this morning as we study your word. Pray you administer grace and hope to our hearts that we might trust you, that we might have peace in our hearts as we know that we have peace with you. We pray you'd be glorified in this time. 
In Jesus' name, amen.
take your Bibles again and turn in them to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 11. <coughs> 2 Kings chapter 11. I'm not a betting man, but I would bet you've not heard a Christmas message on 2 Kings 11 before. So <laughs> we're going to read the text first. And then we will study it by God's help. 2 Kings Chapter 11. It's next to 1 Kings. <laughs> you need help. <laughs> right? And uh, right before Chronicles. 2 Kings 11. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her for six years, hidden in the house of Yahweh, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of Yahweh. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of Yahweh. And he showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sir, and a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of Yahweh on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of Yahweh. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, round the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard, and of the people, she went into the house of Yahweh to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom. And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. 
Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of Yahweh. So they laid hands on her and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between Yahweh and the king and the people. And they, that they should be Yahweh's people and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of Yahweh. And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of Yahweh marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword of the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. A couple of years ago at Christmas, my brother had been looking uh, in my mom's basement for whatever and uh, reason, and he came across a Christmas present my mom had bought me some 30 years before, uh, but had forgotten to uh, wrap and, and give to me. And so it was actually a, an action figure, a Robin action figure, like Batman and Robin. <laughs> and uh, he found this, and it was like an old one. It was like the Adam West Batman, you know. Uh, and so he, uh, he found it. He thought it would be a good idea to wrap it up for me and put it under the tree, uh, addressed to me and from my mom and, uh, and dad. And uh, so I was like, this is interesting. So I opened it up, and it was Robin, you know. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and so Henry now has it, and he plays with it. But uh, but it was, it was a, a strange gift. It was a, a blast from the past. Something I never knew had existed. Something I, I was unaware of. And it was a, a Christmas present uh, that had been forgotten long past. This passage may be like that for some of you. Uh, a story that has been lost to the basement of the Old Testament. Uh, long forgotten with dust over it. And maybe some of you even don't even remember that this was in the Old Testament. You go, I don't know if I remember this story. And so what I want to do for you is uh, wrap it up, put it under the tree, and, and let you open it, or let's open it together and see the great gift that this passage is for us, and even as it relates to Christmas. My title for this is actually a borrowed title I heard from someone else, The Lady Who Saved Christmas. I also heard someone else, uh, found someone else who named uh, their sermon uh, the witch who almost stole Christmas, so from a slightly different angle. <laughs> uh, but that is what this passage is about. It is an unlikely Christmas message, but it is uh, a very worshipful one, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Here's the sermon in a sentence. I'm going to give it to you up front. The sermon in a sentence. God providentially preserves and protects his promises, and he often does it through his unimpressive people. I'll give it to you again. God providentially preserves and protects his promises, and he often does it through his unimpressive people. Before we get too far, though, 
Let's give a little context for where we are in the Bible. We are in the book of Kings, the book of Kings, which you may not have read recently. So let me bring you up to speed. Uh, Kings is actually one book in the Hebrew Bible. It's two books for us, first and second Kings. Um, and it's just split apart there. Maybe, maybe they couldn't fit on a scroll or something. Uh, but it's really one unit, one book. In fact, Samuel is one book in the Hebrew Bible. Kings is one book and Chronicles is one book uh, as well. So we look at the two books together. Really, First and Second Kings has a lot to do with God's prophets. It, to be sure, has to do with God's kings as well. But there's also, these are the books of Elijah and Elisha and their ministries. And not only that, but uh, you have, you can overlay the prophets' ministries from Isaiah to the Twelve over kings. And you have... Uh, these different prophets later in the Old Testament who are ministering and speaking into the situation that these various kings find themselves in, calling them uh, to account because of their uh, lack of faithfulness, their unfaithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant, which they are under. So it's almost like the book of Kings sits there, and there's the historical context. The prophets later in the Old Testament speak to that situation, reminding them of the prior revelation in Deuteronomy under the covenant that they are in. And so it is how God's prophetic word through his prophets came true. Here's what one person says about these books. It's that they describe the, the message of First and Second Kings as the human monarchy in Israel, including the Davidic line, failed to follow Yahweh, with the result that Israel and Judah were taken from the land in fulfillment of the prophetic word. So, they are taken eventually, by the end of Kings, uh, to Israel, to Assyria, or captivity by Assyria, and then finally <coughs> Judah to Babylon. Here's somewhat of an outline for these two books, First and Second Kings. It begins with the united monarchy. Okay, so Samuel and 2 Samuel ends with David, and then 1 Kings picks up with Solomon. But the first two chapters really deal with that transition between David to Solomon, uh, 1 Kings 1 and 2. So you have the United Kingdom under Solomon, and that runs from 1 Kings chapter 1 to chapter 11. It's easy to remember, 1, 1, 1, right? So three ones. So 1 Kings 1 to 1 Kings 11 is the United Kingdom, Israel and Judah together, under Solomon. After chapter 11, uh, the kingdom falls apart for, well, we don't have time, but there's about a thousand reasons why. Um, some of you will get that on the way home. Uh, then there's the divided kingdom, the divided kingdom. And that happens in 1 Kings 12. And you have Israel and Judah now split under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. 1 Kings 12 uh, to 2 Kings 17. So from 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17 is the divided kingdom. Israel's in the north, Judah is in the south. And you see these, uh, these kings back and forth, back and forth. Uh, kings in Israel, kings in Judah, kings in Israel, kings in Judah. And then you have the prophets prophesying uh, towards them during that time. At the, in 2 Kings 17... Israel in the north is taken away into captivity. Assyria comes, 722 B.C., they, they remove them. Then you have the last part of kings, which is we call the surviving kingdom, and that's Judah. 
And that's from 2 Kings 18 to 25. And they last for a little bit longer, but then eventually they too are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And that's how the book really ends. Now, here's what you need to know about the kings of Israel and Judah. If you ever have a test, the, the basic answer is probably, are they good or are they bad? You would be right to basically put bad for almost all of them. Uh, in Israel, all of them are bad. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they're compared to Jeroboam the first, who set up these two false worship centers, one in the north in Dan and one in the south in Bethel. And it was rival worship to the worship in Jerusalem. And so they always compare them to they did evil like Jeroboam, right? So it's always you're hearing that. It's like Jeroboam, like Jeroboam. The kings in the south in Judah get compared to David because David is from Judah and whether they did right or not. There's really two kings that stand out. That's Hezekiah and uh, Josiah. Hezekiah is known especially for his trust in the Lord. That's highlighted especially in the book of Isaiah. And uh, Josiah is known for his obedience to the Lord in the Torah. So those are highlights, but they, their godliness is not enough to stop uh, them going into captivity, especially for Manasseh, who really drove them off the cliff in a way and, and put the nail in the coffin for Judah. And so they're, they're virtually all bad, except for a few in Judah, a couple that are, that are good. Fun fact, the David himself is mentioned 95 times in the book of Kings. And you might think, well, yeah, of course, David, yeah, why, why would... But he's only in two chapters. So he's in chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Kings. And yet, the reason he's so prominent in the, in, in the book of Kings is because he is, the, he is the, really the, the, the proto-king of, of the Davidic covenant. He's the, the beginning of the Davidic covenant. God made this promise with David related to his descendants and the dynasty that would come from them. And this is what we call the Davidic covenant. So since we're not far from the neighborhood of the Davidic covenant, just go back to 2 Samuel. Go to your left. 2 Samuel 7. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, and we read, well, this chapter <laughs> describes the Davidic covenant, which really is uh, like a drip pan that catches all the other covenants. You have references, allusions to the Noahic covenant here, references to the Abrahamic covenant in this, to the Mosaic, to, uh, and then, of course, you have the Davidic, um, and so it's a, it's a kind of a the one who is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant is going to be the one who brings about the fulfillment of every one of God's covenants. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, we read this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God is promising the sure promise to David that he is going to have someone on the throne. He's, it, it, this will not fail. It will come to pass. It's reiterated in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Verse 3 and 4. We read, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. And build your throne for all generations. In verse 29, same chapter. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. This is a sure promise. In this covenant with David, God promised, like we said, a descendant of his would be the messianic king. 
This king would rule over the kingdom that God was establishing. And it's sure to come to pass. In order for this promise to be fulfilled, this one who is a descendant of David has to be in the line of David. That seems obvious. So the line of David will perpetuate. It will go on until this one comes to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And that's why David really is a special focus in the book of Kings. Why he, he's so uh, su- such a point of, of, of focus because he is the one through whom the promise is going to come. One of his descendants. And so after there's a lot of focus on Israel until they're taken away. And then it just zooms in on Judah and what's happening with them. <coughs> the hope of the world rests upon Judah. In fact, when you get to Matthew 1, it traces Jesus' genealogy to the, the, being the ultimate Davidic king, his lineage back to David. And it's really Matthew's gospel saying, here has come the long-expected Messiah king. And let me prove it to you, that he has the credentials. So this chapter, as we come to 2 Kings 11, is massively significant as it relates to the Davidic covenant and God's preservation of his promise. His providential preservation of the promise made to David. In this chapter, the promise of God hangs by a slender thread. In fact, what we'll learn is that the Davidic line has been decimated down to one person. One baby. Baby Joash is the last descendant of David. And so it seems as though the Davidic covenant is on the brink of ruin. And for many in Israel during this time, there would likely have been the thought that there is no hope. That they didn't know that baby Joash was still alive. Without baby Joash, there is no Davidic king. The Davidic line is is broken. There's no Christmas and there's no redemption for our sins. But even though, from a human perspective, God's plans, God's promises may seem precarious to us at times, we know that the word of God cannot fail. As Jesus said in John 10, verse 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. And so from God's perspective, the fulfillment of the promise to David is as sure as ever and is in no danger of proving false. Though it seems to us, from our perspective sometimes, that the promises of God are suffering violence, that they are uncertain to come to pass, from God's perspective, nothing could be further from the truth. That slender thread is stronger than any uh, metal cord that could never be broken. And so, we want to look at this passage really in two parts. there's, there's two major sections here in verses 1 to 3 and then verses 4 to 21. Now, actually, uh, though verses 1 to 3 are shorter, I know, than the 4 to 21, we'll probably spend more time in verses 1 to 3 than we will in 4 to 21. I just say that, you know, at the beginning of the flight, there may be some turbulence, you know, so that you're prepared for it. Don't worry if you're looking at your, you know, timepiece and it's, it's, it's seeming. So I just want you to know where our flight is going. You know, we will be landing the plane. Okay, so 
First, I want us to see in verses 1 to 3 the seemingly precarious position of God's promise. The seemingly precarious position of God's promise. Let me read verse 1 again. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. Up until recently, David's ascendants had been numerous. There was many uh, claimants potentially to the throne if, if someone had died. But in recent days, recent events have led to the royal line of David being decimated. Jehoram, Athaliah's husband, killed all his brothers when he came to power. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 21, verses 1 to 4. So there's a huge swath of Davidic descendants gone. And then the Philistines uh, and others, uh, the Arabs invaded Judah and killed all of Jeroboam's sons. Sorry, Jehoram's sons. They left only the youngest one alive, Jehoahaz or Ahaziah. Then, if you go back at probably one page to 2 Kings 9, verse 27, we read this. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, so he's in this battle, uh, he's in this battle with Jehu, uh, Joram and Ahaziah are together, and it says, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. So Ahaziah is the father of Joash, the baby we will see in this chapter. He is killed by Jehu. And now there is a vacancy on the throne of David in Judah. After killing Ahaziah, Jehu then kills 42 of Ahaziah's relatives. We go to 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. We read there. And he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Bethaked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, Who are you? And they answered, we are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. And he said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Bethaked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. You can see how the text is emphasizing this to show us the desperation of the Davidic line at this point. Yet, uh, now the Davidic line has really been whittled down. And then in steps Athaliah. Now keep in mind, at this point, there are still some more claimants to the throne. But we meet Athaliah here. She's the daughter of Ahab and may also be the daughter of Jezebel in the north. And you just know that name, you know, it's like Jezebel. Oh, you know, she's the wicked one in the north. She's the one eaten by dogs, right? So bad. And she is the mother of Ahaziah, who just died. And so you think about, if you're even curious about this, I'm going to tell you anyway. She's the daughter of Ahab, how is she, and who is from the northern kingdom. How does she become the wife of a Judean king? Well, the answer is 
that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, arranged a marriage between Ahab's daughter and his own son Jehoram. And so somewhat of a political marriage uh, at this time. And it has drastic results. It's just a good lesson. Be careful who you marry. <laughs> and you think of Athaliah, you could think of her as like a Judean Jezebel. She's a Judean Jezebel. So Jezebel's in the north. Here's uh, one, even if she's not biologically uh, related to Jezebel, she's a spiritual disciple of Jezebel. Uh, she is a wicked woman. And we will see that very evidently. When you read verse 1, remember the only surviving descendants of David eligible for the throne at this point are Athaliah's grandsons. That's it. With that in mind, we read verse 1 again. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. That's pretty shocking. What a grandmother. Hey, let's come over for Christmas, you know, and, uh, and play. You know? She destroyed all the royal family. Literally the seed of the kingdom. I mean, this is shocking. She kills all of her grandchildren to become queen. And she knows, no doubt, the, the promise of David, the Davidic line. So there's more going on here than just her desire for power. She hates God and wants to seek to destroy the promise of God. And so she destroys the descendants of David. Here we see the depths of human depravity. God's kingdom has always had its enemies from the beginning. Those who sought to stamp it out in various ways. Rebels of the true God who have not wanted God to be a king over them. Even during Jesus' day, this is, we do not want this man to reign over us. To be sure, the, the Bible presents to us a coming future ruler over the world who has a lot of names. He has the name Man of Lawlessness. He has the name The Beast. He has the name Antichrist. He's coming to rule this world during the tribulation. And he will oppose God's kingdom like no one ever has before. And yet, throughout history, there have been other claimants to that role. Uh, others who have sought to position, we might say. In Exodus, there was Pharaoh sought to stamp out the promise of God. In Esther, it was Haman. In Daniel, it was Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a, a precursor, uh, one who, who does things that, that point forward to someone even greater than him, even more wicked. Matthew, it's Herod. But in 2 Kings 11, has one writer said, how do you spell Antichrist? A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H. Athaliah. She is the one seeking to destroy God's kingdom, to oppose God. Each of these are but an echo of that final opposer of God's promises. Yet, if you read about this one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this man of lawlessness who is coming upon the world, here's what we read to give us hope. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so what I love about this passage is he comes on the scene and it's almost like the Lord Jesus comes and boom, he's gone. It's like he's introduced and he's gone. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill. Meet him, he's gone. <laughs> that, that's, though he, he rules during this time, and uh, this seven-year period, Daniel speaks about revelation, speaks about he will be destroyed. And so no matter how bad it may seem, how precarious the promise of God may seem at any time in history, they will come to pass. God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, back to 2 Kings 11. This is the first time in Judah that someone not in the line of David is ruling over Judah for six years. And the first time that a queen is ruling over Judah. After verse 1, we're left wondering if the promise God made to David has failed. You close your Bible, oh, don't need to read the rest of this story. Now imagine, I mean, this is a hypothetical, which probably would never happen. But just imagine with me for a second. That someone is reading the Bible for the very first time. Maybe, maybe you're reading the Bible for the very first time. You don't know anything about the Bible. You start in Genesis. You start reading. And let's just pretend you're like super perceptive. Uh, and you pick up on things that it's taken some of us like years and decades to pick up on in the, in the storyline of the Bible. But you're seeing this unfold. And, and you're reading this story. And you're getting closer and closer to 2 Kings 11. As you read Genesis, you notice there's a promise made after the fall of man into sin that uh, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. This promise of, uh, of good news in Genesis 3.15. And so you're like, okay, the seed, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And, and you, like the biblical writers, pick up on the fact that, oh, maybe it's going to be Cain, the firstborn of the woman, the first, one who's born first. And, oh, it's not Cain. <laughs> he kills his brother Abel. And then Seth comes. And then Noah. And there's these ways of speaking about Noah. It's like, maybe Noah is the, the seed of the woman. And no, it's not Noah. And, and you keep going on and on and on. And then through Genesis, you, you, you meet this man named Abraham, and God makes a covenant with him uh, to, to make him a people, to give him a place, uh, to, to, to give him prosperity, and then to make a program to bring this blessing to the world. And it's really going to come through Abraham. And so then you, you see that kings are going to come from Abraham in chapter 17. Okay, that's interesting. And then you get to chapter 49, and you you learn that, oh, one of uh, Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and one of these sons, Judah, is going to have the scepter. That is going to be the one through whom the king comes. So now we've narrowed it. Now it's through Judah. And so the seed promise, you're, you're noticing, okay, you're like, it's like, you know, where's Waldo? You know, who's it going to be? And, and you're finding closer and closer, whittling it down, whittling it down, and you find it's going to be through the house of Jesse. Isaiah 11, verse 1. And it's going to be through David, 2 Samuel 7. So you're like, okay, one of David's sons. Getting warmer, getting warmer. <laughs> and then Solomon. Okay, Solomon, you're reading Kings. Okay, it's going to be uh, following Solomon here. And then you get to this chapter. And, you read, and, you, and you're like, oh, man, a lot of David's descendants getting killed, getting, you know, knocked off. And, and then you read this, and it says all the royal family. And you go, oh, no, 
If you're a perceptive reader, you go, it's over. Close this thing up. I mean, God has failed. There's no way, there's no possible way the promise can be fulfilled. All the royal cities that God, God committed himself to a plan that would limit him, so to speak, if we can even say it that way, to David and through one who would come through David. And so it doesn't come through David. God's word fails. And there's no one left. Ah, so you, you just happen to close your Bible and you go about your day. And you're just like torn up about this. And you're like, right, I'm just going to read a little bit more. I mean, there is this much left. So you open your Bible and you read verse two and you read, but Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat. Oh, don't you love that, that transition? You know, we've often spoke about how if there's bad news that, that comes first and then you have a, a but conjunction, th there's going to be good news coming, right? If you have good news first and then a but, it's bad news coming, right? Uh, hey, we got so many presents for you this year, but <laughs> Amazon, you know, it's like, oh, we didn't get it. So uh, that's not good. But here it's, it's obvious. It's really bad. And so what is this woman going to do? Well, look at verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And they hid him from Athaliah, so he was not put to death. And he remained with her for six years, hidden in the house of Yahweh, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Wow. Jehoshaphat is the lady who saved Christmas. And you probably didn't even know her name. <laughs> it's a forgettable name, a forgettable character. But God loves to do it that way. She is the sister of Ahaziah making baby Joash her nephew. One writer tried to explain the dysfunction of this family. Said, quote, the second verse sets Ahaziah's sister as the savior of Ahaziah's baby son against Ahaziah's mother. <laughs> yes. Uh, we find out from 2 Chronicles 22, 11 that she's also the wife of the priest Jehoiada. We're gonna see here. But here in the systematic murder of the royal family, she grabs baby Joash and his nurse, and stuffs them, and, and it's this word that's like, it's like the storage closet in the temple, right? They don't have, you know, it's like not beds, but it's like, you know, it's just like the stuff you put in there. You know, they had to build everything with storage uh, rooms, and even the temple. And so there's like this storage room, so they stuff them in there, and uh, that's where they get put. And the Hebrew phrase, stole him away, it's, it's used in other contexts of Kidnapping. It's used in Exodus 20, verse 15, the command, thou shalt not steal. And so it's like in, a, in an ironic way, uh, Aunt Jehoshaphat is the godly kidnapper. And she steals him away. It's this violent uh, taking of the baby in a, in a moment of panic and quick decisions. And so he's put in there. And then for six years, the next six to seven years, he is raised within the temple complex by the high priest. And so, how incredible is that? He gets raised in the temple. Now, this is a great place to hide baby Joash. Because Athaliah is never going to come and worship Yahweh, the true God, in the temple. She's a Baal worshiper. She hates God. And so, like, you pick the one place, like, where would Athaliah never go? Where would she never go? 
the temple. Let's hide the baby in the temple. And so he's like bouncing around, you know. Just think about this. I mean, anyone here seven? I know our Lucy is seven. You know, like that's what we're talking about. And, and that's how old that she, uh, he, the baby Joash is when he's uh, presented. But he, for that long, he's, he's brought up in the temple. And he's like, I want to go out and play in the Kidron Valley. It's like, no, you cannot. You know, we have to stay in the temple. And, and so there's just this, this interesting childhood being raised in the temple. And that's what happens. And we read verse 3 that Athaliah continues to reign, leaving, no, leaving Israel in, or Judah in the, the thought that there is no hope, that they're all gone. No one, nobody really knows that this is happening. The year is 840 B.C., and God's entire plan of redemption hangs on a single fragile thread. We often say the VP is one heartbeat away from the presidency. And in 840 B.C., God's promise was one heartbeat away from failure. If Jehoshaphat doesn't hide baby Joash away from being killed, then there will be no Messiah, no Christ, no Christmas. So we say again, she's the lady who saved Christmas. God's plan of salvation for the world seems to be shaky and fragile at this point, and yet he always preserves his promise and he often does it through people, ordinary people. She is the human agent for preserving the kingdom of God in the world. Because of what she does in verse 2, all of the rest of the chapter is able to take place. And all of the rest of redemptive history is able to take place. One writer said this, Yahweh's promise hung by a frazzled thread in 840 BC, and she kept it from snapping. But just consider how God did this. Right? Think of all the ways God has in his arsenal and what he's done already in the book of Kings. I mean, or think about what he did with Herod. Herod just gets, you know, eaten by worms. Like she could have woken up that morning before the slaughter of her grandkids and gotten eaten by worms. She could have fallen through a lattice like one of the kings did in, in the book of Kings. She could have been mauled by bears or eaten by a dog. I mean, there's like a lot of methods in Kings for taking out people that God wants taken out. But he doesn't do it in any of those ways. He, through direct intervention, so to speak, but rather through his providential working, through this relatively unknown woman, to stash away this baby in the temple. God loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary, the simple act which preserves his promise. It's so, it's so interesting. I... <laughs> how forgettable Jehoshaphat is. I've taught this passage before I taught through Kings years ago, and, and I was trying to tell our kids about this story, and I was like, wait, what was her name? <laughs> I even forgot about it. And, and it's like, that is, I think the whole point, though, God loves to use ordinary people who live, they serve God, and they die and are forgotten, and that's okay. We need to be the same way as well. He doesn't need powerful and popular people. He can use simple people doing simple actions to accomplish his great purposes. God had his servant just where he wanted them, wanted her at just the right time. One writer said this, God continues to work in unobtrusive ways, to be sure. But God's decision to work through people means that what they do truly counts for something, and in this case, actually removes the danger to the Davidic dynasty and shapes the future of the promise. 
What we do really matters. Jehoshaphat shows us that. So we keep praying, we keep preaching, we keep proclaiming, we keep loving others for the Lord. If you're here and not a Christian, you may be wondering why the line of David is so important. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that it goes on? Why is the Messiah so important? Why is Jesus so significant to us? Well, because, as we said, God puts in motion a plan to rescue humanity. Humanity has been plunged into sin and the guilt of sin because of the sin of Adam. And God counts Adam's guilt and sin to all of humanity. And all of humanity willingly sins themselves. And so God enacts his plan to bring about one who will be qualified to bear God's wrath for human beings. One who is eternal and infinite himself, truly God, and yet one who is truly man. And, and he is presented in the Bible as a king, as a priest, and as a prophet. And one who is pierced and raised from the dead for his people to bear their sins on the cross and bear the wrath of God. This is why the Davidic line is so important, because it's through the Davidic line that a Davidic ruler will come, the Lord Jesus. He will qualify people to be a part of his kingdom, and in his second coming will come and sit on David's throne, ruling over this world and bringing righteousness, justice, and peace upon the earth, restoring all things. It is not just about personal salvation. It is about cosmic restoration and regeneration. Personal, spiritual regeneration of new hearts and cosmic regeneration of the entire cosmos. And it all hangs on this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, at a, at a point in history, it seemed as though that whole promise was about to break. And yet, nothing could stop God's word from coming to pass. What an encouragement to us. Whatever your personal struggle is, whatever your challenge to the promise of God in your life, remember how God always keeps his promises, always comes through, always fulfills his promise. He does it in the, big, the biggest case here. Surely he will do it in every lesser case. He cannot lie. He cannot break his word. He cannot be false to his own nature and character. Amen. And so we see in this first part the seemingly precarious position of God's promise. It seemed that way. But it wasn't. Secondly, we see the successful plan to protect God's promise. The successful plan to protect God's promise. We meet Jehoiada in verse 4. It says, In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought captains of the Karaites of the guards and had them come to him in the house of Yahweh. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of Yahweh. And he showed them the king's son and he commanded them. This is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house. Another third being at the gate, sure, and, at, uh, and a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you, which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of Yahweh on behalf of the king, shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. But with the king... Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. We're not told right away, but we learn that he is the priest. Now, Jehoiada leads this coup to restore the Davidic king to the throne. The Karaites were probably some kind of mercenaries who served as like a royal bodyguard. We just, we'll just think of that, about them as like the secret service uh, at this point. They were brought in and secretly shown the baby boy who's been hidden away for six years 
And Joash is then going to be made king at seven years old. It's hard to convey the intensity of this moment. I mean, it's, these, these soldiers thought all the royal seed was dead. And then they're brought in, probably vetted before that, uh, to show their, their loyalty, and brought into the temple. And it's like, all right, guys, we have a big announcement. And, uh, and then they open the door, and out walks the seven-year-old. And just imagine that scene. To have lost all hope in God's promise, potentially, or just how it could be fulfilled. And then there's all of our hope. There's all of our, of our hope standing in this person. And he's like, shh, <laughs> don't say anything. <laughs> this is the length of this time that has gone by. is almost the length of two, president, two terms for a U.S. president. Just imagine that time going by and just thinking, oh, where, where's our, how is God going to do this? But here is how God is going to do it. He is spared one. The main point of this section is about the security needed to ensure the successful coronation of Joash. And there's some details here that we're not going to get into. You know, one third here, one third there, you know, all these things. What, what you really basically need to know is that you had a group of soldiers who were protecting the, this area. And there was a third of them. And then they would go off duty. And a new third would come and replace them, right? And so what he's really saying is, hey, here's a great time for us to do this, to have maximum coverage. Because no one will be suspicious if there's a lot of soldiers moving around at one point. Because they're used to that when there's a transition. When there's a third going off and a third coming, there's a ton of soldiers there. And so that's our moment when we have the most. And so really he just divides them all up and gets all of them there uh, around station at the same time to protect them. And verse 8 is the main point. Surround the king, each of, with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. So protect this little guy. We pick it up in verse 9. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his, man, his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. And came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of Yahweh. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand. From the south side of the house to the north side of the house, round the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And I love this. It, everyone gets in place, takes up spears and, spears and shields. Um, and these are the ceremonial shields of David. And really what they want to show is the legitimacy of what's about to take place. That this coronation is legitimate and it is truly the Davidic king. So when people see this little baby or this little, this little boy at this point and he's got the Davidic shield, uh, they realize instantly what this is all about. And I just happen to think it was these things were stored in the temple. And this is just me creatively thinking like, you know, kids love to play dress up and stuff. And this is the Davidic heir. And it's like, did he ever play with these, you know, the shield and, and spears like in his playtime in the temple? I mean, what was there to do there? Uh, so maybe he had already seen these things before. And, but now it's official and he's, he's presented. 
A seven-year-old, Joash, is brought out, crowned his place on his head, and he's given the testimony. The testimony refers to God's covenant law. I remember in Deuteronomy 17 that the king was to have a copy of God's word uh, of, the, of the first five books to be careful to do it, to be an example to the people. And here's what is given to him. It's a good gift. What do you give to a, a new king? Ah, oh, man, I got invited to this coronation. What do I, I don't know what to give him. You know, what do you give a king? Well, you give him a Bible. That's what you give him. You know, that's what they were giving him here. And that's probably where one commentator pointed the tradition of the British uh, monarch being given a copy of the Bible at their coronation service. Probably comes from this. <laughs> and what would happen for Israel? This king was to rule God's people by God's word. And so he's hailed king and he has the support of the military behind him. Verse 12, in the middle there, it says, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. Now this is getting loud. Now it's all out in the open. Verse 13, when Athaliah heard the noise of the garden of the people, she went into the house of Yahweh to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. And Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains who were sent <coughs> the army, bring her out between the ranks, put her to death with the sword. Anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of Yahweh. So they laid hands on her. And she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house. And there she was put to death. Long live the king reaches Athaliah's ear. She runs to the temple. Verse 14 describes what she saw when she arrived, how official this was. The customs are being followed. They're coronating him. And ironically, she has the gall to say treason. How backwards. This is the very thing she had done. With these words, one writer said, she pronounces her own crime. She's recognized immediately and ordered to be executed, but not in the temple. They take her out and they put her to death, not so not to defile the temple. And how incredible the way God preserves his promises. I mean, think about the word of God, which contains the promises of God and how the word of God has been preserved down the line, and how the, some have sought to stamp it out. I think it was Voltaire who said that, uh, you know, in a hundred years or so, that, his, that the Bible would only be in museums. You know, I heard one preacher use that, and he said, welcome to Emmanuel uh, Museum of the, you know, Bible, Muse you know, Bible Museum, or whatever. It's like, yeah, we all have Bibles here. We're all studying it. How incredible. You can't stamp this out. God preserves his word, and God performs his promises. He sees that they come to pass. And then the conclusion of this is really a recommitment to Yahweh and to the covenant that he made with his people. The covenant stands. The Davidic covenant still has hope. And so they recommit themselves to God and his covenant. Verse 17, and Jehoiada made a covenant between Yahweh and the king and the people. And that they should be Yahweh's people. And between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces. And they killed Matin, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of Yahweh. 
And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of Yahweh, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. And actually, he has two names, Joash and Jehoash, just so you don't get confused. Uh, and it's like, you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a Charles, but we call him Charlie, right? So it's kind of like that. And, uh, and so don't get confused. The same boy. Uh, here he is, he's, he's coronated. He begins to reign. And the people recommit themselves. And part of that recommitment is, is saying, here's what we trust in. We trust in Yahweh, and it is, involves repentance as well as they go and they tear down the altars of Baal, the false worship which Athaliah had set up. So she just made Israel, this, uh, or Judah, this, this place of pagan worship, and they go through and they say, part of our repentance is dealing with the false ways of worship. And this is the essence of faith and repentance, a looking to God and to his character and promises, and, and then is a turning away from that which displeases him. And so they renew themselves to God as his holy people. One writer said the central issue was not Judah's relation to the Davidic king, but to the divine king. Spiritual reform was an even higher priority than political reform. And this is similar to what happened nearly 500 years ago when people began to discover what the word of God said again during the Protestant Reformation. They began to go, wait a minute, we're worshiping this way. But the scriptures actually say it should be done that way. So we need to change this. We need to do it this way and stop doing it that way. And, and that is the way, as God reveals his word to us, we are reminded again of what it is God would have for us and the direction we are to go. It corrects us and it trains us in righteousness. He studied kings recently. You may have picked up on a subtle detail that's missing from Athaliah's reign. Did you notice that Athaliah's reign, so to speak, doesn't have any opening or closing formula like all the other kings have. So-and-so reigned for so many years, and then he died, and so-and-so became king in his place. None of that. It's almost as if the author of Kings wants to highlight for you, by his absence of that common refrain for every single king, that he doesn't view her as a legitimate monarch. That though she had a, had a reign, so to speak, which interrupted the, 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 the eternal dynasty of David, she could not completely interfere with it. This isn't the only time in the Bible that God's promises have hung by a thread. You remember Pharaoh and the babies in Egypt and his decree to have all these infants killed and the Hebrew midwives <laughs> Uh, delivering uh, these babies nevertheless, and Moses himself being delivered in a mini ark. <laughs> in a mini ark, just like Noah built an ark, but it's a baby ark, and Moses is put in it, and he's floated down the Nile and delivered. Or another king, Herod, who seeks to stamp out all of the babies in Bethlehem because he's afraid of a king of, of David of a descendant of David who may take over his reign and his rule. And so a similar threat comes to the promise of God. And yet he's unsuccessful because 
God's son flees to Egypt, and he grows up, his true identity concealed under the gaze of another king of the Jews. August Kunkel writes this, Though in human terms these events may be thought of as a danger to the dynasty of David, the preservation of the child is evidence of sovereign control that constantly ensured the safety of the promise. God is often quietly, providentially at work to guarantee his promises come to pass. He's not said to be working directly in the story, but make no mistake, he is working. His silent providence is acting. Long before Matthew 2, God was at work to, to, to preserve the promise he had made. And so we look at verse 3 again in 2 Kings 11. And he remained with her for six years, hidden in the house of Yahweh, while Athaliah reigned over the land. When we look at verse 3, I'm going to quote one writer here who said, We see the visible reign of the illegitimate kingdom, and you have the secret existence of the true king. The true king is there behind the scenes, and the pretender doesn't have a clue. There's often a vast difference between what is apparent and what is actually the case. In Luke chapter 2, which we'll read next week, we read this in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And verse 4 says, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There is the great Caesar Augustus reigning over the world, and yet in a backwater place, back Bethlehem, Nazareth, after that, here is the true king who's on the scene, unknown to Caesar at this time. If this long-expected king would suddenly appear, and will suddenly appear with those loyal to him in the future, and will reign from sea to sea on David's throne with shouts of long live the king. Darrell Davis says this, This is what puts iron in your guts and makes you able to resist any other power that tries to control you. Knowing there is a legitimate king keeps you from despair when the pretenders carry on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that is tucked away for us in an unfamiliar place for most of us. And yet, how worshipful it makes us to think that when it seems from our perspective, your plans are on the brink of failure. They can never be. You do it this way to make us that much more confident in your power against all odds to bring to pass your promises. Every promise is ours in this Davidic son, the Lord Jesus. Every promise is yes and amen in him. And that which he has not yet fulfilled in his first coming, he will fulfill when he returns. And he has fulfilled all that which pertained to his first coming, his first advent. And so as we consider that in the season, may we have great confidence that you will fulfill every one of your promises for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.